their stories were really, really interesting just because like through just sheer cunning and extreme violence, they were able to manipulate a system which expected like subservience essentially to a gang identity and a gang boss. And they just did crazy, crazy things. Like I'm going to to like go and pick a fight with with one of the higher level guys. It goes, I think the, the guy tries to rob him or something like that. He takes out a gu his gun, he puts it in his mouth. He's like, no, I'm robbing you. What's up everyone and welcome to the Wide Awake Podcast. My name is Joshua Rubin and I'm your host. Today, my guest is Darius. <laughs> I get it right? Darius. Darius. Let's, let's go with Darius. It'll be easier for everybody. Yeah. He is an author, researcher, and journalist, and he has been studying gangs in South Africa for over 10 years. And that's why I brought you on the podcast today, because I have, I mean, I've interviewed several gangsters. I've interviewed prison wardens, and I've done, I've been involved in this kind of work for a long time. And I never get the same answer twice. Mm. I always get different answers. Um, so I thought it would be really interesting to talk to someone that has spoke to gangs. You've spoken to, I'm sure, officials, uh, officers, and I'm sure you've probably got a better picture of what's going on than someone like me, right? I mean, I would hope so. Yeah, I would hope so too. <laughs> what have you been doing for 10 years? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself and how you ended up studying gangs in South Africa? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's a bit of a, a convoluted answer, unfortunately. So I'll try and give you the uh, the short version. But mm. I, I was so I've I've been working as a researcher for a while um, in sort of foreign aid, humanitarian work, and a lot of the work that I was doing was around conflict, peace building, violence prevention um, in different countries in in Africa. A lot of West Africa work. Um, anyway, and I thought at some point, why don't I do a PhD? I was not really enjoying what I was doing and, and, you know, I decided to do a PhD. And it just so happened that the thing that I wanted to research, which was not gangs, but violence prevention through something called gun-free zones, was well sort of established and there was a good body of research in, in South Africa. And so I, I submitted a proposal and I was going to do that and based in Joburg. And then really randomly, uh, while I was in Joburg doing my, my scoping study, talking to academics and stuff like that, I had a few friends who I knew from Liberia who were coming to Cape Town and they're just like, you know, we're coming to a wedding, come and talk to some academics in Cape Town and, and come to the wedding and like essentially party with us for a bit. And I did. And I ended up coming in and speaking to a few organizations that were doing some very cool grassroots work uh, focused on violence prevention and targeted specifically at gangs. And they were just very keen to, to have me come in. And just like that, I sort of shifted my research topic. So it was still violence prevention broadly. I was looking at informal mechanisms and kind of social controls um, and those as, as mechanisms for violence prevention. And now it was something completely different. Um, what I, I mean, if you've ever spoken to anybody that's done a PhD or proposal and what you eventually write are two completely different things. So it was this weird sliding doors moment or a series of them. And then, yeah, I've been a gang scholar ever since. <laughs> and it's, it's always fascinating to me because, I mean, a lot of people come to South Africa for the beauty. Um, and you've obviously come here for something very different. Yeah. And I think it's amazing because, I mean, there's people doing work in South Africa. Um, I'm sure you've met a lot of them. But I just feel like it's something that's not really talked about in South Africa so much. Um, it's very like hush-hush. South African publications like to put out the beautiful side. You know, it, it is a beautiful place. But obviously, as we know, there's a completely different side to South Africa uh, and Cape Town that people know about but don't really pay attention to. Um, 
I mean, when I was just looking at the murder rates, we have one of the highest in the world. Where does Cape Town rank in terms of cities? Like, where does it rank in comparison to other cities around the world in terms of murder rates? So I think the, the most recent statistics, it's 11th um, per 100,000 people. I, I don't know what the murder rate is. It's, it's something like in the 60s. Um, generally, most of the cities in the top 50 list are from the United States, uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, and, and yeah, the only... Mexico, si Brazil. Yeah, also, also exactly. Top, yeah. Uh, United States, mm. Caracas is on there in Venezuela, and Kingston, Jamaica is on there. So, you know, that whole region mm -hmm. there. Um, and the only cities that you see from the African continent, I mean, pretty much anywhere outside of those, the, those regions that I just mentioned, are in South Africa. So mm. Cape Town being top, uh, Durban, uh, Port Elizabeth, and I don't know if Joburg is on the most recent ranking, but it's usually right up there around like 40 yeah. or something like that. And yeah. why is the murder rate so high? In Cape Town? Yeah. You know, it's it's a difficult thing to answer. Every city has its own history, its own particular makeup. Mm. I think a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that uh, Cape Town is a port city. And I mean, Port Elizabeth is, but it's a smaller city. Um, I, I actually don't know much about it. I've never been, but I'm assuming it's there, right there in the name. So, you know, it's on the water. It, mm. it has, but it's, it's not the same sort of transshipment point um, as Cape Town is, right? So with that and the possibility of, of, you know, drug supplies coming through directly through the city. I think that there's, you know, obviously a huge potential for, um, you know, mm -hmm. for illegal drug trade and, and the profits that, that come off of that. So I, I, that would be my guess. Um, but it's, yeah, it's difficult to compare two cities with, with already high mm. murder rates to say, well, this is what differentiates this city from that one specifically. But yeah. if I was to guess, that would be it. One of your research papers or articles that I read said, um, what did it say? It said Cape Town is the deadliest city in Africa. Yeah. What What makes it the deadliest city in Africa, and how do you arrive at that conclusion? Well, ju just exactly the mm. those rankings, right? So I mean, it's yeah, it's it's not an assessment that I'm making, but there's a research institute coming out of Mexico that looks at and and creates this ranking of the the most violent mm. cities in the world, right? And so it every year releases a, a list of the, the top fifty, and in Cape Town for five, six, maybe even more years yeah. running, has been the deadliest city in Africa. So it's gotten as high as eighth in the world, um, and now it's at 11th. It was like back at, at 16th or maybe even 20th. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know what, what you know, the, the, the specific concoction or, or formula mm -hmm. is that separates it from other already very violent cities in, yeah. in South Africa. But like I say, the, the port city is, is something to do with it. I think the specific sort of history of the city and the way that the, the forced removals um, affected the social fabric of, of people that were living in places like District 6 and then, you know, they were strewn across the Cape Flats and suddenly kind of um, left to fend for themselves, not only um, in the face of an antagonistic state, but without these family and community networks that they had before. And so it created a space where, you know, gangs could really flourish. Mm. And in terms of gangs, how many gangs does, or how many gangs exist in Cape Town? You know, gang statistics are, are because it's something mm. that's hidden and informal, it's very difficult to measure. And gangs are like, they're in constant flux, right? Mm. You've got the ones that have been around for a while, like the mongrels have direct links, I think, to District 6 and some of the gangs that came out of there. The Americans are obviously the biggest gang. Um, but then you've got all these small gangs that are popping up and growing like um, the spoiled brats or 
There's well, some with really odd names. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. The, the, the names themselves are, are really crazy. Yeah, like you know the the, the jesters, Dixies, the, the Dixies, or, or yeah, the sexy boys, or yeah, the sexy or, or the laughing boys. <laughs> yeah, uh, things like this. Uh, the, yeah, the mongrels mm -hmm. um, and junky funky kids. Yeah, um, and and I, I think th there's a widely cited estimate that there's about 120 gangs, but this is also very old and based mm. on, you know, what, what is a gang? Are the the Durban kids in Hanover Park considered a gang or a crew? You know, there's like maybe I think when I was there between like 12 and 20 members or something mm. like that. Very small. Um, they're constrained or confined to a particular court, whereas like, you know, other gangs are much bigger. They will span entire communities or even franchise themselves out to other communities. Um, there's other gangs that exist mostly in prison, but also kind of on the streets now. Mm -hmm. And so like, how how do you create a, a taxonomy for it's measuring all of these? It's almost impossible. Well, yeah, yeah. The, the, there is no international definition for what a gang is. And so you can imagine it's very difficult to then go into um, a number of diverse communities mm -hmm. and say, okay, all of these groups have the characteristics of a gang. And then this is only in colored communities. You know, black communities have their own sort of makeup of, of what gangs look like there. And they're much more informal, less identity based, don't really have mm -hmm. the name sort of same sort of like name recognition and identity um, around their chappies and, and you know, their, their chappies lore. is like tattoos. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Their history and stuff. So yeah. it's, 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 it's very imprecise. But let's say, mm -hmm. Between 90 and, and 120, all very different from very small to, to large sort of mm -hmm. super gangs like the Hard Livings and the Americans. Um, in, uh, in prison, you've got the number of gangs, but they're also now kind of out on the streets. And the estimate is about 100 or so thousand gang members. But this Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I read something. It said 130 gangs, roughly. Yeah. Roughly 100,000 gang members. Exactly. Which is a lot, I yeah. feel, for such a small place. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting what you said there, actually... Why are people so focused on the colored gangs? Um, because you don't really hear much about uh, gangs in the townships, uh, in black townships and stuff like that. Yeah. Why, why is that? So this is actually a, a huge um, sort of blind spot for, for research. It's something that, that I don't understand why nobody has researched. I was hoping to, to do a comparative study of black gangs and colored gangs uh, to see what, you know, what, what is the difference? Mm. I mean, partly I think it's, it's sort of the, the anecdotally, let's say from, from people that, that I've spoken to in, in black communities, um, part of it has to do with sort of culture and community systems and social systems around gangs. And so, in colored communities, you have a far less sort of evolved system of, of community mechanisms that um, keep organizations like that somehow in check. This is not to say that, that there isn't a great deal of, of violence in, in black communities as well for different structural reasons and, and things like this, but it's always been explained to me that the family and clan system is something that keeps a check on violence sort of escalating mm. to the extent that it has in, in colored communities and then the forced removals, like I mentioned, you know, those community systems and those family systems and these informal systems that um, people relied on to keep those gangs in check in a place like District 6 where were, you know, totally eradicated and torn apart through the apartheid regime. Um, and then you have, um, 
Yeah, just you know the the whole sort of colonial legacy of of the way that the the colored identity was set up, and and how you had all of these different cultures that were just like smashed together into one monolithic culture, mm. and how that essentially destroyed in many ways um, all of those different cultures. Whereas, um, I, I you know everybody suffered under apartheid, but I I don't think that. Um, uh, yeah, black communities were were affected exactly in that same way, and so they have the remnants of of some of those mm. social and cultural mechanisms. This this is what is is it, it kind of makes sense to me based on conversations that I've had. But I should say that the caveat is that that you know I've never researched this in depthly, um, and this is based on I don't know fifteen to twenty conversations with members of. Um, uh, gangs or sort of criminal networks, let's say, in, in black communities. This is their explanation. Mm. Yeah? Um, but, I, you know, if there's anybody out there that's listening, that's an inspiring <laughs> researcher. No, really, I think it's, yeah. a, it's a very important and, mm. and very interesting uh, potential area of research. I mean, I would do it myself if I had more time. Um, and, mm. and the interesting thing is that there is also anecdotal evidence that um, black gangs are changing. So prison and sort of this carceral approach to violence prevention and gang prevention wherever you know, lock everybody up and throw them all in prison and then through the number they all intermingle mm. you have networks that are created you have drug distribution networks that are created you have gun distribution networks that are created you have knowledge that's passed around mm. and so I mean again this is totally anecdotal because I, I haven't researched in places mm. like Kailiche and Yanga and, and um uh, in Googs, but uh, but I have spoken to people that live there, right? And so I actually recently had a conversation with somebody from Site C in Kailiche, and he was saying that there's a process where where gangs are, are starting to formalize a little bit more in, in their community. Um, and part of that has to do, I think, with his words, is with the networks that are created in, in prison and, and, yeah, some of the, the opportunities that that unfortunately creates for um, for people that, that, you know, maybe didn't have those access to, to guns and drugs and et cetera in the same ways. Yeah. yeah. And um, another thing that I find interesting is that women are often are left out of the conversation as well. Yeah. Um, we all know they obviously are women gangsters. Um, and I think you've done some research on this as well, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so let's let's shift it back to things that I actually know about. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or that I've done direct research. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, can you tell me about that? Like, do you know what percentage of gangsters are women? I'm assuming it's much less. Yeah. Um, so it's it's difficult to say. Again, numbers and percentages are 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 not something that's easily attributable yeah. to to um, you know to to gangs just mm. because it. It, and, and even, it's changing all the time. It's changing all the time, and something like membership is is really kind of not mm. just amorphous, but but quite ambiguous, right? Because some people are, are like they've taken a chuppy and they're like hardcore members, whereas other people have like taken a chuppy and maybe they're peripheral. They're trying to get out and they're coming back mm. in. So, yeah, hard numbers are are tough. And yeah. when it comes to to female participation, you have a small group of females that are considered sort of core members where, you know, they might engage in gang activities. I mean, they don't usually shoot, um, but they might use violence in particular ways or might participate in drug distribution or more likely are accessories to crimes mm -hmm. where they'll go and scope out what another gang is doing or after a shooting, they'll take a gun and they'll hide it or they'll just stash guns for, for gang members. There's a lot of that. And then there's also, you know, just like, Gang girlfriends, right? So if yeah. if a woman is hanging out with with a gangster, and I mean, sometimes they're just affiliated with a gang, and maybe they will be a number of people's girlfriends, right? Like, 
sexual capital is is something that people use as a, a survival strategy, right? In in a place where mm-hmm. resources and access to resources are um, somehow gate kept by yeah. these organizations, and as a female, you're um, you know you're you're in a hyper masculine environment. Mm-hmm. You are potentially you have the potential to be victimized by different types of gender based violence. You do what you can in order to to kind of you know get what you can. And, yeah. and it's a, a legitimate sort of survival or coping strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard one, one of the gangsters that I interviewed told me that obviously there used to be quite a lot of women around and they would just pass them around. And they were also gang members, the women, but like they were kind of just there to do the bidding of the guys yeah. in the gang, which I found quite disturbing. Sure. Um, but have you found a difference in the way um, girls join gangs? Um, I, I, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but is there a lot of the guys that I spoke to were recruited very young and um, they were kind of used as like runners and stuff like that. Have you have you spoken to female gangsters and they told you how they joined the gangs, usually from from boyfriends? So oftentimes through a boyfriend, but it may also be for for um, through mm. friends. And, you know, the underlying reasons are generally the same. Right. Again. Um, lack of access to material resources. So if you're around the gang, they're the ones that have money. They're the ones that have food. Um, access to criminal opportunities, which also allow you to to make money. Uh, just like a lack of belonging, right? Or the need for belonging. Mm. Um, let's say you have problems in the home, or you're 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 victimized and disempowered um, because you know uh, abuse in the home is is something that I mean affects everyone, but predominantly affects females, mm. right? And so you ironically, sort of seek sanctuary in, in what is also a very violent place. But at least you're like amongst the apex predators in your community, right? So if you have, you you you, you may be sort of closer to violence in a particular way, but if you're connected to a gang, you're, nobody's going to fuck with you, mm-hmm. right? Other people in, in the community are going to be, um, I mean, they're not gang members. And so you have, you've differentiated yourself from from them by, by doing that, right? So Protection is is something that um, many people say are re- is a reason for, for why they join gangs, yeah. um, males or females. So if you look at kind of this underlying reasons, they're really the same. And I think research in other areas have in other um, locations has kind of borne this out. But but the link between sort of partners, um, boyfriends, that sort of thing, and that as an entry point, I think is particular to females. And through your research, what areas have you focused on? So you've done the Cape Flats. Yeah. And what other areas? I mean, just m- most of my work is in in um, in Cape Town. So mm-hmm. pretty much right across. It's just the Cape Flats, really. Yeah. Yeah. So any work that, that I've done in, in other areas is has been secondary research mm-hmm. or sort of co-authored papers. Right. So recently I co-authored a paper where I looked at my research in Cape Town and compared it to so colored communities in Cape Town compared to indigenous communities in Canada on the prairies. Right. So looking at at what are the similarities between the way that specifically street culture is is used. So street culture being sort of a short form for um, this set of, of gang activities, practices, speech, dress, those sorts of things that identify you as a gang member and you can use almost as a form of, of capital or what's called cultural capital to 
project into your community that you're a person that deserves respect, um, you know, to that you're a person through aggression that is able to to get protection. Um, and by your proximity to to gangs, you're able to uh, access material opportunity. You know, these things that, that I've spoken mm -hmm. about before. And, and you find actually very similar sort of uses and applications of street culture. And so, you know, people that come from marginalized communities, often youth, young men and women, um, from indigenous communities are looking for that sense of belonging, plus all just like the basic uh, fundamentals of 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 what it takes to to get by, right? Mm. To be secure, to have some money, to be respected, to be empowered, all of these things. So, yeah, my my research in other areas is kind of indirectly linked to what others have done, um, yeah. and, and it's mostly comparative. So it's it's looking at at my primary research in Cape Town and seeing what are kind of the yeah, the, the, the continuities and discontinuities mm. between that and, and, and other locations. Another thing that I saw, I think you researched kids within gangs. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So th this, this was a, a piece of journalism. So it wasn't like research outright mm. in the way that the other ones were. Um, but yeah, I was very interested to, to see, you know, what is sort of the initiation process for somebody that's very young. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to see how sort of proactive and manipulative a lot of the the gang members can be with with very very young kids um you know it's it's they they, they will perhaps i mean I, I think everybody has just to, to caveat this by saying everybody has their own sort of entry point but at the very least in in, in many instances they may sort of identify a, a child as as being somehow precocious in the way that they want, you know, he's a bit of a troublemaker or whatever. Um, and they'll say, okay, well, you're going to do something for me because, you know, these, these are people that gang members are people that, that kids will look up to, right? They're mm -hmm. the ones that have money. They're the ones that have like the nice cars and stuff. And so they, they want to be associated with them. Um, so let's say here, here's a 10 rand to go like, get me a Coca-Cola. You can keep the, the rest. And, you know, this is also something that obviously a child is drawn to because like suddenly if you're coming from a super poor household and somebody gives you a 10 rand just like that, you know, it's it's a, a huge sort of statement of status, mm -hmm. right? Um, plus the power and the respect that they command. Um, and so over the course of time, that child will then be brought in to, to do sort of more and more um, intense or, or like criminal yeah. of activities. They start so, off by programming you, really. They kind of draw you in. I spoke to a guy called Welcome, okay, yeah. uh, who is an ex-gang member. And he was saying that he wears a lots of jewelry when he speaks to kids mm. because he, he looks like a gang member. He looks flashy. He looks rich. Yeah. But... They come in, the jewelry gets them there, and then he starts speaking to them about a different way, you yeah. know? Um, but your kids are so easily manipulated, and it's it's disturbing, eh? Yeah, I, you know, and this is exactly why why it's done, right? Because they're easy to control, they're, they're malleable in, in terms of, like, their understanding of the world. Um, and then they're not going to face the same sort of disciplinary measures within the, the criminal justice system. Um, and, you know, there's pipeline of, of children mm. that are, are willing to and ready to be gangsters. So they'll start hiding guns and eventually they'll be given a gun and they'll be, you know, take a chappy and they'll be, like go and, and, and shoot. And before you know it, they're, they're gang members. But at that point, they're still probably only like 14, 15. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're, they're not probably going to go to, to polls more. They're going to go to, um, uh, I actually forget. Juvenile detention. But yeah, juvenile detention center like uh, Basasa or something like that. Um, yeah. And 
you know, by, by the time that, that they're 16 or 17 or 18, they're already hardened gangsters, potentially. Mm. You know, some people get in later, but, but yeah, I, I know of people that have gotten in very, very early. And you were mentioning the initiation, right? You were, you were interested in gang initiation for kids. Yeah. Um, was there an initiation or was it like you say, they just slowly bring you in and then eventually once you're in, they kind of initiate you as you get a bit older. I mean, have you, have you heard of a kid like a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old having to do a real gang initiation? So it's, it's not an initiation. I think a, a lot of our ideas of what an initiation is come from the States and mm. American movies like getting jumped in or beat in or something like this. I don't really hear of, of that specific entry point. Um, but initiations often or, or sort of you're the th crossing the threshold between being considered an associate of a gang and actual gang member and taking a chappy and being respected often do require the taking of blood, right? Mm. And at some point, you are going to be expected to pick up a gun and go into a gang fight and fight alongside generally your brothers, right? But I mean, sometimes women as well. And yeah, so so even if there's no formal point that designates that that now you are a gang member, earning that respect and, and being held in mm. sort of esteem and regard by other gang members eventually requires the taking up of violence. And so whether that initiation happens on, on day one or, you know, on day 12 or on day 50, most likely you're going to be going through that process. Do you think gangsters see life differently in terms of the value of life. Um, because like you say, if you're a gangster, you're more than likely going to end up killing someone at some point. Um, and it's always like the, the one time I was in Manenberg um, and there was a shooting and I saw a, a dead guy on the floor as I was driving by. Um, and there was kids around, people were kind of just going about things as normal. I mean, do you think gang members and people in those areas have been so desensitized to it that it just doesn't mean as much? I mean, I don't think it's desensitization. I think it's, 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 it's a survival mechanism, right? I think that the normalization of violence um, for somebody that's not a gang member in a community that is affected by, by gangs, um, I mean, on some level, you, you have to learn how to cope in, in what is a sensational and in, in, I mean, mm. I don't want to say inhumane because any township community, any any community that I've researched in has culture, has commerce, has community, has joy and, and, and all of these things. Mm. But yeah, the, the level of violence that people have to endure um, just just in, in their proximity, I think, is, is inhumane. What's what's. Mm. Yeah, the system that's been created around that. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that that's partly it's, it's just a survival coping mechanism. I think when when you talk to gang members specifically, um, a lot of the mentality is just kind of like live fast, die young. Um, and so you have to prepare yourself for that. You have to prepare yourself for the fact that somebody beside you is going to die, that you're probably going to go to prison, that you are going to to die yourself maybe very, very young. Um, and if you're going into a, a gang fight and you need to be fearless, I mean, partly the drugs will help you, but also like you just need to compartmentalize all of this thing in the mm. same way that you need to do all these things in order to get by 
if you were just living day to day in the community, right? Um, but I wouldn't say that it's it's a total desensitization because when people get out or, you know, if they have their own near-death experiences, these are all very traumatic. They start thinking about, yeah, people that they've killed, people that they've lost. You know, all of that sits with you. You just, I think, probably do your best to to numb it and meet death on its own terms. There's something called terminal thinking where you you just come to accept that, um, yeah, death is just going to be a part of your life. And, and it's nothing more than a survival mechanism. It's, mm. it's, I mean, maybe not a conscious choice, but, but somehow yes. Right. So mm. yeah, I don't want to, to like give the impression that people are just like feelingless automatons that yeah. are, are going through this. It's, it's like a, a very, very difficult situation that, that you use whatever you can to, to cope mm. with. And I think I would like to talk a little bit about your experience, right? So you obviously aren't from here. Um, and you come here to do this research. When you go out and do research, is it very clinical in a way? Um, or are you going through these areas by yourself, talking to people? Like, how how does it work? How do you do things? Yeah, it's definitely not clinical. Um, I'm, I'm what you call a... a participant observer. So somebody from the, the hard sciences would probably frown <laughs> very hard on, on the type of research that we do. But, you know, anthropological research is all about being embedded in a space. Um, and so if I'm in, in any community, generally, I mean, I, I wouldn't be there if not for a personal connection that I had with somebody. And so it might be through an organization, and this is kind of how it started. So the organization that I was working through um, they had a rehabilitation center and that rehabilitation center took in a lot of gang members or what were, they were trying to become ex-gang members from Hanover Park, but also from other communities. Um, so from Ottery, from Menenberg, from Delft, um, yeah, from, from different areas. And it was through the connections that I made there, I would go in and kind of do these life skill sessions around movies and like analyzing song lyrics and, you know, so like stuff that, that, you know, th these are young men mostly would mm -hmm. really identify with. And you just like form connections. And when they got out, they'd go back to their communities and and you would just hang out, right? Like I, I think the thing that's kept me interested in, in my research is the close personal connections that I made and yeah, the way that the research was done. Like it was, it was, it was very personal and interpersonal. You know, you could just be drinking in a shabine and, and talking about life, your own and somebody else's and that's research. You know, it's not a series of, of questionnaires or a formal interview process, mm. although I did have more formal interviews for certain aspects of like um, the exit process. But all of that was contextualized by the time that I spent with people and often people that I knew over the course and, you know, still know, but over the course of years. Right. So to see somebody's struggle to get into a or, yeah, their struggle in a gang. Right. I, I usually I'm not there for for the entry. Right. But, yeah. But that process and then sort of this repetitive struggle of them trying to get out and how difficult that is. It's like impossible. It well, you, feels impossible. It, it feels impossible. But I also would not have an understanding of what that's like mm. if I was to do an interview with somebody. You know, they might be able to tell me in a matter of an hour or two. But if I have a close personal connection with somebody and, and I see that, partly I feel that as well. Um, yeah, it just gives a, a completely different um texture and nuance and depth to to how I'm able to to present my research. And who are some of the most interesting people you've spoken to? Like, have you, out of out of the gang members that you've spoken to, um, 
Um, Can you tell me about some of them? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you you can't be in that world and, and not have mm -hmm. a sensational story. You know, everybody. I mean, you can say this. I think about everybody, but but this is also a very sensational kind of setting and environment. And so everybody has a, a super interesting story and one that is like quite poignant. Um, yeah, that there's. So I, I wrote an article uh, that focused on two gang members um, or that, who are now ex-gang members, and they managed to operate outside of official gang affiliation. Um, one had uh, like a relatively high rank in the number, so he was able to use that, and the other one didn't have any ranking in the number. And so their stories were really, really interesting just because like through just sheer cunning and extreme violence, they were able to manipulate a system which expected like subservience essentially to a gang identity and a gang boss. And they just did crazy, crazy things. Like they would have shootouts. So um, one of them, well, they're both from Mitchell's Plain. They're actually quite live relatively close to each other, but neither of them come from Mitchell's Plain. So one was was kind of just now arriving in Mitchell's Plain where his mother had moved. I think he was just moving from prison and the Americans were controlling that particular area. And he's like, you know, I need to sort of assert my dominance. Like imagine coming in with the mindset that you're going to assert your dominance on what is the biggest and most notorious gang in the entire Cape Flats, right? What the Americans. Yes, exactly. And so his whole thing was, okay, I've got all these guns that I brought in from from another community. And he's actually somebody that that is... Um, his father was black, so he lived in in Crossroads, um, and his mother is colored, and so she's from Mitchell's Plain. His father died, and he moved to, to Mitchell's Plain. So he's got like this like very interesting cultural mix, and he lived um, back in the day in in gardens. So his ability to to read space and read sort of like um, cultural um, signs and, and whatever is 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 just amazing and it's just mm. developed I think into somebody who just stands on their own essentially and so he's he's coming into this this new space and like taking all of these things that he's learned from all these other places and he's just like okay well I'm I'm going to to like go and pick a fight with with one of the higher level guys he goes I think the, the guy tries to rob him or something like that he takes out a gu his gun he puts it in his mouth he's like no I'm robbing you and th this this wasn't a boss, but he was like the brother of yeah. who was the local boss. And then after that, of course, the Americans come back and, and shoot on him. And so he's like, he's explaining how he's like hiding all of these guns and all around where his mother's flat is. And so he's having a shootout with like three or four Americans. Um, and he's like running from gun to gun. So it's like they're fighting a number of people, but it's just basically one guy. Him. Yeah. So this, so this was the article you did. It was called... Um, the Cape Town gangsters who use extreme violence to operate solo. Exactly, yeah. And um, for me, that was so fascinating because I could never imagine stepping up to a gang, right? Because one of the perks of being in a gang is strength in numbers. Exactly. But when you're operating solo, like, I don't even know how you would begin to defend yourself yeah. or operate in a space filled with massive gangs. Yeah. I mean the Americans, the mongrels, the hard livings. Like, yeah. I could never imagine. When I was reading your article, it was talking about these guys. The one was, um, what was his name again? Uh, so the, they're pseudonyms, but I think they were Prince and Jerome. Prince and Ibrahim, I think. Oh, Ibrahim, maybe. I, I can't remember. Oh, no, it was Jerome, yeah. In, in, Prince in and Jerome. I mean, I, I it know, was what, Jerome, I know yeah. what the real names are, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, the fact that these guys 
operate solo in these areas is so freaking scary to me. Mm. Um, I mean, did they come across as calculated? Uh, because yeah. I feel like you would have to be. Where so, a lot of the guys that I've met um, are kind of just follow the leader. Right. So, so their whole thing is that, and they're just incredibly smart, articulate individuals that, that don't see themselves for, for their own separate reasons as subordinating or willing to subordinate themselves to the gang or the boss. And so part of it is this acknowledgement that like, even with, within the gang space, which is quite a sensational space and very violent, there are expectations and rules and all of this. And if you act outside of those, then, you know, you put yourself in danger, but people also get up and be like, yo, what's going on here? Like, this is crazy. And so that's why you do crazy things. The crazier, the better, right? There's something called the mindset of locura, which um, other scholars have written and in, written about in the United States, which ties into street culture and this idea that acting crazy gets you respect, right? So on some level, you're doing that. But even acting crazy isn't like some pathological thing. It's a calculated move to assert yourself as sort of the, the top dog or the, the apex predator in a particular place. But then also, so in that particular case, like, the, you know, you, you're there's an acknowledgement that you're also never going to be able to defeat a gang of Americans by yourself, right? No. So you may set the tone, but then because that guy already was in prison for quite a, a period of time and had established himself quite high in the number and had all sorts of like really high level connections in the gangs, including in the Americans, he was able to then sort of use that. And in fact, the I don't know whether it was, it was the local boss that he knew or somebody that was affiliated with him when the Americans eventually came to talk to him. He's like started to Sabella and then talk about, you know, their mutual connections. They're like, oh, yeah, I know him. And then, you know, that was the thing that legitimized him. So it was his ability to, to use violence and be crazy, but then also his ability to understand the way that the gang system works, um, the way that that networks work and the way that the number works in his favor in order to then fight alongside, mm. but also sometimes against the Americans as sort of like a, a free agent, a mercenary of sorts, distribute drugs by himself, right? Under the protection of, of the gangs um, while kind of, yeah. It's so staying wild Staying outside to me. of their system. Yeah, it's it's great. And, and the stories that this particular guy has are, are just crazy. Like I've- Can you tell me some of them, please? I would oh. love to hear them. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you, know, you remember, yeah. I'll have him on here. I, I'm happy to, to introduce you. They're, they're his stories. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're, they're wild, wild stories. And he's an excellent storyteller. I don't think I would do them justice. But, oh, I'd love to speak to him. But just, <laughs> just, just crazy things where you, yeah, there's just like a total disregard for, for one's safety or just a total belief in themselves mm. and, and just going out and, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, doing wild things. But uh, the, what, what's actually more interesting about that story is the way that he got into violence. And so maybe I can tell you that and then and then he could tell you yeah. at some point um, the, 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 the different things that he did. But so th this was the, the guy that I said, it grew up originally in, in a white community. So in a place called uh, Breda Park, I think. So it's just behind the garden center now. Old apartments still exist. We actually took a, a walk through there with him uh, uh, some time ago. And so his father was a caretaker there and you know, it's a, this is the place that their family is living. So it's like your, your 
a five-year-old, six-year-old black kid in what is like a, a really benign and, and, and safe and secure place. And so he's just running around kind of being free and doing his thing, like clearly obviously not well off, but not in a community that's like, you know, overrun with violence or whatever. Um, and at some point, I think his father just decided that he wanted to go back to, to a black township. So he moved to Crossroads um, to kind of reconnect with his culture. And this guy had never really, I mean, he'd visited, but like, you know, the, the cultural capital associated with living in that space is completely different, right? Mm -hmm. Even at that point, like his knowledge of Kosa was not particularly good. He would like fuck up words and people would make fun of him. He was constantly getting bullied. And so he was just like this like rag that everybody would just kind of like toss around. Like an outcast in a yeah. way. Yeah. And he had a cousin that sort of protected him. And, and I think this cousin was sort of like street adjacent or, or whatever. Um, and eventually his brother as well. Um, but he started to see the respect that that these kinds of, of guys get, right? And he started to, to pick fights. And the first fight or one of the first fights that he picked was like with a girl. You know? <laughs> like this, this goes to show... Was she a big girl? I, I don't know. <laughs> but, but the point is that like... He, he, like, mm. everybody was picking on him, you yeah. know, irrespective of gender or, or whatever. Um, and he won that fight. He won other fight over a soccer ball. And eventually he started to see in himself that, like, okay, this is getting me respect. You know, the more violent I am, the more I mm. fight, the more I take, up, take on this, like, puffed-up persona, um, the more respect I, I get in this particular community. And it's, you know, a very violent place. Like, you know, you're seeing dead bodies. I mean, he told a story about, like, going to urinate somewhere like an outhouse coming out and like there's a dead body in the morning you know like that's your first sort of like encounter with mm. death um and then eventually so he got into his brother's crew um it's a gang in a different sense so smaller more informal um less based around identity and like the selling of drugs and turf and, and all of this stuff um, but still kind of a gang um and he, for a very long time he's like robbing and whatnot but he, he like he never killed anybody um, he just went to like great lengths when he was robbing to, to show people that the gun was loaded to like shoot in the air. He just like, it wasn't a point that he could pass. And he was betrayed eventually by somebody that was like affiliated with that crew. And yeah, he was almost killed. And he's just like, at that point, like that's what snapped. And from that point on, he was just like a killing machine. And, and again, like you can see that this isn't something that like is, is a pathology that, that is ingrained in somebody um, that, that lives in them. It's mm -hmm. a conscient, conscious choice that some people make based on circumstances um, that are incredibly difficult. Yeah. Where they see it as a, a legitimate venue to or avenue for attaining power, respect, mm -hmm. money, all of these things, and protection fundamentally, right? So if you grow up in a community where there is no policing, you don't have community development in the same way that you do in you know, the burbs and, and the CBD, um, you don't have basic services provided for you, you do what you can. And not everybody turns to gangs. In fact, like very small percentage of people do in, in um, communities, I think it's like something like 5%. Um, but you know, that sets the tone. You you see gang members acting a particular way. And on mm. some level, everybody's kind of got to at least like acknowledge that persona and the power that, that it, it brings. Yeah. I mean, I spoke to Turner Adams. Have you ever heard of Turner Adams? No. So he's one of the most well-known gangsters in South Africa. Um, and he's, he's covered head to toe in tattoos. 
um, if you look up on YouTube, there's some old interviews of him mm. in Portsmouth Prison. Um, and he actually became an actor and he, he's been on this podcast several times. Um, and one of the things he told me was the crazier you are, the more people stay away from you. Yeah. So in, in like this guy's case that we're talking about now, I assume, I mean, the wilder you are, especially as a solo person, I feel like the more respect you'll get. Yeah. And people will be like, yes, he's not affiliated with us. Technically, he's an enemy. Yeah. But I kind of respect it. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. No, you respect the game, right? Yeah. And especially if after that shootout and then your ability to legitimize yourself through the number, um, you come to some sort of understanding where like, okay, yes, we'll allow you to sell on, on our turf, but every once in a while when we need you for a hit, you'll go out and do it. Yeah. Of course, you'll take your money and all of these sorts of things. So it's, yeah, you're, you're, you're unaffiliated, but you're, you're still entrenched, You're still right? slightly affiliated. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's only so much that you can do to fight a gang like that. Right. I think, so, so having a conversation with this guy, I'm like, well, what would have happened if you had killed one of the Americans? He's like, well, I'd probably be dead. Like, there's no way that the gang would, would let that pass. Mm -hmm. Like probably he said that he thought he was lucky that I think two of the guys were wounded. Like some guy was shot in the stomach and, and I can't remember what the other injury was, but if those had turned to, if uh, they had died, if they had died, then, you know, that that's a completely different set of circumstances. So you can't just be wild and crazy and expect everything's going to go. Yeah. Because this isn't an action movie, right? This is yeah, like John Wick. Yeah, right? you'll still, you'll, if, I mean, if you murder someone, yeah. the family doesn't care who you are. Right. They're going to come after yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, but actually another really interesting anecdote from, from so th this has not less to do with violence, but still kind of shows how there's, yeah, there's just a completely different sort of like moral, not moral universe in, in like a, a sense that, that I'm judging, but just there's a different set of rules by which people have to play, right? And so there's a guy that was going in, um, standing before a magistrate in, um, in Weinberg in, in the courthouse there. So it's kind of like this clearinghouse for a lot of the, the different communities. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of eyes watching, right? And it wasn't like a, a big thing, I think, that he did at this point. Uh, so the magistrate's like, tell me why I should pardon you, right? And he's like, fuck you. I don't care. And he just like gives her like all this condemnation and like no respect, knowing that this wouldn't be well received. Like what he's supposed to be doing is like groveling mm. for leniency in order to help reduce his sentence. But he knows that the people that are watching have connections to the other gangs. And, and you know, this is a place where he's trying to, to also like display that puffed up persona. And the way that he explained it, he's like, you know, I'm doing these things. I'm doing these things because I know I'm in the public sphere, in, in, in the public court, quite literally. And then, you know, I go back to myself. I'm like, oh man, why did I do that? But knowing that the repercussions that he's willing to take on also earn him a certain amount of respect. And so he's like, you know what, when I went to prison, because then he was sentenced, I was just in there and I was even crazier. I was just like picking fights with everybody, right? And he's like, I was sinewy and skinny and like whatnot at that point. But people were thinking, like, who is this guy? You know, who is this like crazy guy who's just like got no care in the world and no respect and presumably like, um, yeah. Uh, not not much of a, a desire to stay alive, but of course he did. Like all of these mm. things were 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 very very calculated. Yeah. So so what your 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 guy told you was was very true. For I mean that's that story that you that you started this conversation off with, where he put guns yeah. all over the place and was running and triggering all those. I'm still trying to. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine doing something like that, but I mean, 
every gangster I've ever met is completely broke. They don't have their own place to live. They're usually living with other gang members or their parents. Yeah. Um, and there just doesn't seem to be much gain, monetary gain. Um, where is all the money going? I mean, it's, it's going to the top, right? I think that, that more and more you're, you're seeing kind of the high-level gang members insulate themselves through where they live and their um, connection to legitimate businesses. Um, that's, that's where all the money goes. I think, yeah, as you say, the, the vast majority of gang members are living below the poverty line. Um, the money that they spend or that they get, for the most part, they, they will... Yeah, it's a big robbery that that that'll happen. Then they'll just smoke it out, right? They'll, they'll they're partying for for a few days or a week or or whatever, and then and then eventually you're broke again because like you're dealing with addiction issues and, um, yeah, you're 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 not saving this money or or, mm. or putting it away or anything like that. You're you're living a very short term type of life without the expectation that you're going to survive for very long. And so you know that there is. None of this, and and you're really not making enough money to to put aside then. Nothing, anyway, yeah. Right? Um, so yeah, so it's 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 unfortunately a situation that is created by poverty, um, by inequality, and something that that reinforces these things through um, substance abuse issues, and then through contact with the the criminal justice system. So as you become criminalized, you make it more likely that you're going, or less likely that you're going to be able to find a job. Because, I mean, I know people that that have gotten out of prison 10 years ago um, and because of, of you know, they, they were part of um, a murder, um, served their sentence, got out, are long out of gangs and, and, you know, suddenly, like, they can't get a job. They're, like, trying to get the most basic job at, at pick and pay and, you know, there's this thing where you, like, in those organizations anyway, you get fingerprinted and, and to your fingerprint is connected your, your whole rap sheet and, and you know, and then you've got no job. And so it's crazy, mm -hmm. actually. That was a situation with a, a female gang member, a former female gang member. And she was talking about, like, she was desperate. Eh? She she was working for an organization that did violence prevention and was trying to find another job. Um, but, you know, somebody's really got to take a chance on you because, because you've got this criminal record. So you're either going to be employed um, by a group that's working that kind of thing because they obviously mm. know that that your skills come with you know a certain amount of a baggage or an informal sort of arrangement with somebody that probably isn't going to be paying you that much so then you're you're you know precariously employed and if you're seeking formal employment you're not going to be able to so she was out of a job for like a year and a half started selling off her furniture and at one point she's like yo I don't want to go back to the gangs but like I may have to go back for a loan but like when you go back for a loan suddenly then you start reading you back in exactly. yeah Right. And so can you imagine somebody that that has gotten out, has worked as a community activist to prevent violence, is faced with a situation a decade later where she might be at least she has to consider taking a loan from the gang. And who knows what sort of slippery slope that creates? She herself knows that. Right. So you're living in, in very, very precarious circumstances. Um, and yeah, I mean, that that whole system or, or you you you've engaged in 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 something that that itself is is you know driven by poverty and and mm. um uh disempowerment and, and segregation and, and racism and all of these things and the deeper you get into it through criminalization in you know your criminal record and, and 
um, stigma associated with being a gang member and, um, yeah, your substance issues, it just makes it really, really unlikely that you're going to get out. It's, yeah, it's so sad. And, like, when you look at the structure of gangs and gangs in Cape Town, it is like a big organization where the low-level people get so abused, they don't get paid, um, they, no one really cares about them. And the money just gets funneled up to a very select few. Um, I mean, do, do we know who the leaders of these gangs are? Are they in the public eye or do they, are they very private? Do you know about that? Uh, you don't have to mention names, obviously, but... Yeah, I think it's, it's well known who, who the leaders are. It's just the question is like, how do you connect the leaders to... The organization. To the organization, right? And I think this is, you know, what the anti-gang unit and, and a lot of those types of efforts are meant to do. You know, that their whole stated purpose is to target high, so-called high flyers, right? And, and to behead sort of the, that, that... The tops the, of the organization. The, of the yeah. organization. But, you know, that in itself isn't really a strategy because, well, I mean, you, you can... One, it's very difficult. You put a lot of resources into um, bringing sort of one person to, to justice and, and putting them through the, the criminal justice system. But then, you know, maybe they're in there for a few years and they're well-respected within there anyway. You know, they probably have a number rank and, and all of it that. It doesn't seem to matter what you do because they go to prison. Right. They'll just end up being sure the but, leader of the numbers gang right or, or right. a general law but even if somebody gets gets shot and killed at, at the top right like the, there are many people that that will want to take their place and it creates a power vacuum where suddenly you have this struggle for control and i mean not to say that it's better to have gangs in communities because it's obviously not um but those vacuums can be incredibly violent and, and you know, the, the carnage and the, the, the death toll that they take, not just on, on the members themselves, but also on, on innocent bystanders and community members. And just mm. like living in the context of, of a gang war, like the stories that you hear and the, the decisions that you have to make where you're going to work and you're like, oh, you see that there's going to be a shootout, but like you're going to be late and you don't have the leeway because, you know, you're scared that you're going to be fired from your job. And so you take a chance to like pass through a court knowing that like, Maybe the shooting will start, but, you know, you hope that it won't. Like, mm. it's crazy. Going back to people like Prince, right? The guys that operate solo. Yeah. How would they survive in a place like Paulsmore Prison where you have to fall? If you are a gangster, you have to fall in the number. You have to fall within the 26, 27, or 28. There are no other gangs. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I've, I've asked him that question. I was like, it's interesting that, that you don't see yourself as being subservient within the number, but you do within um, w within sort of the, the street gang structure. Um, and his response was, and so like just, just to, to um, bracket this conversation, there's not a lot of people that operate solo, right? So like these are, are very, very particular case studies. Um, and, and so it's, 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 you know, difficult to, to generalize, I guess. But his answer was, um, the number is something that, that exists outside of all of us, right? So it's something that has like a myth and a set of symbols, and it's something that you can use to your advantage, right? So it's, it's a tool, right? So, so he's incredibly intelligent, um, well-spoken, and uses that as a way of turning the number against other gang members, right? Because if you're able to argue 
according to the number, to somebody that's even higher ranking than you, I mean, the way that he explained it, they have to fall in line, right? Um, and so in a way, you're, you're not, I mean, you, you are obviously somewhere in a hierarchy, but using a set of tools um, that, that you have at your disposal that, that gives you a lot of power if you're able to wield mm. it with, with, you know, a, a, a sharp and cunning mind. Um, and for the other guy, he didn't join the number. Uh, I, I don't think he actually spent that much time in prison, but it's interesting, like he would, he, he knew all about the number. And I know other people that have done this as well, where they were like a specific number, they'd be a 27, but they'd also know everything about the number from the 28s and the 26s, and they would just use it to manipulate people. And so this other guy wasn't a, a number, but he knew the number or aspects of it. And he would go in and just act like he had, you know, a particular level. He would just be like in a, a drug den or whatever. And, and people would just assume that he was like mm. this high ranking guy because like, who would do this, right? <laughs> like, who would be <laughs> crazy enough to try something like that? Um, anyway, that, that, was, that was his explanation. Um, and so like, if, if you have the, the boss. Every time I speak to a gang member, they're always a general. No matter who they are. So he wasn't a general. Yeah. Yeah. He was, I mean, he, he didn't have the good news. I mean, he wasn't. He, he but wasn't that's what anything. they always say they are. Yeah. Yeah. No, Prince wasn't either. I forget what Prince's rank was. It's somewhere in my book, but he mm -hmm. wasn't a general. And I mean, just, just coming towards the end, I want you to tell me about your book, right? So you wrote a book called Gang Entry and Exit in Cape Town, Getting Beyond the Streets in Africa's Deadliest City. Yeah. So can you tell me about this, uh, how it came about and... Um, yeah, just some of the things that you learned along the way. Yeah, sure. So this is is my PhD thesis that I've turned into into a book. Um, so it's it's kind of takes all of that that research that I did, um, the you know hundreds and hundreds of hours spent interviewing people and just interacting with people in different communities, and then almost like funnels that through the lens of 24 case studies. So life histories where like I had sat down and had formal interviews with people, including Prince and Jerome and, and others, um, to talk about their progression into gangs and their sort of um, exit out of them. And so I was looking at my research is, is, is based, is focused through the lens of street culture. So again, sort of um, street culture is, is, is presumed to, to in, like you, you see all around the world, um, like for example, I made the comparison to indigenous communities on the prairies in Canada, where you have um, in communities that are marginalized, a set of sort of practices based around criminality and violence and, and certain types of speaking, although that's different, but you know, that there are sort of continuities that exist in places all around the world that give you a certain amount of respect, a tool to gain power, um, some proximity to, to making money and, and all of these things that are in a way the inversion of, of everything that you would expect in the mainstream, right? Which is all like proper and well-spoken and blah, blah, blah. And so the question I asked is, okay, one, how did people use these street cultural tools? So in what way did, um, was, was the way that you dress a sign of respect, the way that you speak? So Sabella and um, speaking aggressively and all of these things. And then sp mostly the way that you act crazy, aggressive, um, uh, yeah, hyper sort of sensitive. What did that do for you? What did that get you? Right. And then once you lived in that world for, for a period of time, how did you get out of it? Right. Given that these are all tools that you took on to deal with your marginalization in a community that is, segregated from the mainstream, cut off from mainstream opportunities, cut off from basic services for the most part, cut off from like functional policing. And so 
in a situation where these things still all exist, but now you've been primed to act a particular way and you don't have so many other cultural and social resources available to you, how do you get out? What are the, the social networks and, and cultural resources that you used? And so what, what people, I mean, again, everybody has their own trajectory in and out, but generally there was three things that people looked at. And it was religion, it was, it was profession, and it was uh, family, right? And so these were sort of like the, the three aspects of the so-called normal life. People would say, oh, I'm out of the street life, I'm into the, the normal life. And it's obvious what, what each of these things gives you to a certain extent, right? Your family gives you a sense of identity and belonging, uh, religion to a certain extent the same, as well as like a script to live by and some sense of community. Work obviously gives you money. But what's interesting is, is that aside from these types of, of sort of personal and interpersonal resources that, that they offer, they're also important cultural resources. So how do you get your community or your enemies or even your own gang members to believe that your reformation is for real, right? You stop dressing a particular way. So the cultural capital that came with your particular, you know, your techies or, or your earrings or your chain or the mm -hmm. way that you wear your, your facial hair, suddenly all of that is gone, right? What you're trying to do is, is now be the church brother, right? So you're, you're, you've got your slacks and your Sunday, um, uh, shoes Sunday on. Best. Sunday best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. And and it's, you know, not to say that these are all performances, mm. but people understand that enacting the working man, the family man, and especially the religious man or woman gives you sort of the best opportunity to stay alive for long enough for your enemies to forget about you or die off, mm. your gang members to stop harassing you, and then the community to sort of accept you and, and sort of, um, yeah, take your change to, to be for real. So, just to give you an example of how this worked, just to, to, to see, because, mm. like, you know, people obviously are still devout Christians and Muslims and all of this, but they're walking across a territory where, you know, their, their gang still controls it and their gang is still all about, and they want you back because you're a resource to them, especially if you're a higher level guy, you know, you may have contacts and uh, connections to drugs or guns or just knowledge about like how the gang works and stuff. And so they like start... You know, like speaking to you in, in gang language and stuff. And what you have to do is because, again, people are watching, but now they're watching in a different way. You have to be respectful and say, ah, no, brah. You know, no, my brother, I'm, 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 I'm just on my way to church mm -hmm. and you're dressed in a particular way. And it's very intentional, right? You're like, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like come at them, dodge, weave, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, not piss them off because you have to, to still live in that territory. Mm. And these are people who, who control that territory and you're a threat to them potentially because you know a lot about the gang, right? But you're trying to keep them at an arm's length and showing them that, that not, you're about a different type of life now. And so it's a very intentional type of thing. It's the same thing with work and, and family. You may use similar sort of like set of, mm. of maneuvers to be like, no, don't come at me with gun things. I'm busy with my family now. No, I'm a working man. Or if you just, some, another guy was saying that he was a um, former mongrel you know, at first the mongrels would come and try and kind of like lure him back in, but eventually they're just like, oh, we see that this guy, he's just all about his work. You know, they just see he's coming and going and coming mm -hmm. and going and just doing his job. And eventually they just kind of left him alone and, and in peace. And do you find that like, because you, you say when they leave, sometimes they build these characters, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, do they do that slowly over a long period of time out of the people that you spoke to? Is that what you found? 
No, I think it's, it's. Or do you think it's like one day it's just like suddenly I'm a religious man? You start dropping little hints here and there and pull no, the character. It, it just happens. And I wouldn't mm. say it. So, it, you know, I don't want to come off as this being a, a complete performance because, you know, even gang yeah. members are, are religious, right? That, it's another thing I wanted to talk yeah. about. Yeah. So, so that religion already exists. It's just how that religiosity is, is displayed is different. And, you know, you, you may very well be super devout and, and yeah, like a, a really hardcore Christian or Muslim, um, but there's and and that lives and exists by itself, right? But that can exist without the performance. There's a very specific set of postures and mm. uh, ways of speaking and you know ways of acting that people outside of you understand that that your your faith is for real, mm. right? So there's none of this personal relationship with God. Yeah. I mean, there very well is, but to the community, which is what is important now to your enemies, to your former gang members. Like, that's what's going to keep you alive, mm. right? So you have to to really embody that, yeah? I mean, so many of the guys that I've spoken to are very religious. Mm. How does that work? I don't understand it because isn't one of the biggest... I mean, I'm not a religious guy. I don't know much about religion. But isn't one of the, the biggest sins, I mean, taking another person's life? Yeah, but religion also allows you absolution, right? Um... I, you know, I'm also not religious, mm. but if you've belonged to something and identified with something and suddenly that's taken away from you, who are you, right? Your, you, your connection to your family may be tenuous or maybe non-existent. Um, your place in your community is, is held with, with extreme um, suspicion, right? I think the religious community is one that welcomes most people without asking questions. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not a theologian, but at the very least within Christianity, you know, there's this whole um, notion around um, rehabilitation and, and redemption, right? Like mm. this whole redemption narrative. And I think that that's something that is, is very enticing to somebody who has um, spent many, many years perhaps doing things that they're not proud of and that they've suppressed. And like, then how do you deal with it, right? If you come into a community and an ideology and a higher power that absolves you from that and gives you um, a sense of a way of understanding your world um, that is 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 beneficial, I, I mean, I, I, I mm. would jump into that full force. And, you know, if you've jumped into your, your gang wholeheartedly, you need something else to to take that that space right um i i think that i trying to think if there's i don't think there's any gang member that i've ever come across that's not uh in some way religious um yeah or spiritual or something yeah yeah i mean usually believes in in you know one of the the big religions um yeah it's 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 you know an important sense or it's an important part of of that sort of reintegration, rehabilitation mm -hmm. process. And in your study, you said that there were four phases to leaving a gang. What are those four phases? So th this is a model that, that's not my own, but so, and it's not something that I used in the book. Um, so I, I wrote another article. The way that like academic articles are written is that you could take the, the same um, 
like set of, of research, like data essentially, right? So the same study, so the, the same 24 characters and test a, a framework, right? So the one that I just described focused on street culture and extending street culture mm. into um, exiting gangs because most of what's been written about street culture is within the gang and it creates this impression that you can never get out. There's this locking in effect. So I like, wanted to see, okay, what happens when that's untrue? And then what are the cultural resources that people look at, right? So that's what we just spoke about. Um, but what, what you just mentioned is something called role exit theory. And it's been used to theorize exit from, I think, like even religions. Yeah, so I was about to say religion, yeah. Um, uh, different types of, uh, I actually can't even remember what the other ones were, but like uh, criminal networks, things like this. And I wanted to, to apply it to... Um, gang members in, in Cape Town to see if it works. So the three stages are first doubts. So you start kind of doubting your affiliation with whatever it is. Um, Seeking like, alternative al routes. Alternative associations or socializations. Mm -hmm. uh, turning turning points, points. And then new role creation. Exactly, right? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, to some extent, all of these things hold, but the way that it's presented is as sort of like a, a sequence of stages. Mm -hmm. And that's not always the case. I mean, you have people that try and get out, get back in, do get out, get back in, get partly out, get sucked back in, or, you know, um, have like very sort of like protracted processes. For example, Prince, I mean, Prince wasn't getting out of a gang necessarily, but he's getting away from gangsterism as he described it, right? So he's like, at one point he decided, he's like, yo, I'm done with killing. I'm done with like big gunplay, big stuff. I'm, I'm done, but I'm still going to sell drugs, you know? <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's it's the lesser of two evils, It's right? better, yeah. It is better. And even it's it's interesting. In you, some ways. <laughs> no, I mean, it, yeah. it is because yeah. like the body count on this guy, I mean, he, he's not even able to say how many people he's killed, right? Like. This is no. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. Um, but, you know, even the police that were in his area, what caught him at one point, like when he was just getting out of that life, um, selling drugs and they're like, listen, we're going to leave you with this. We're not going to take you in. We, we know that like, <laughs> we don't want to antagonize you to push you back into the person that mm. you were. Right? So they knew. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, the, the, going back to, to the question, exits aren't, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're not, there's no stable, one simple way, continuous yeah. stage stepped kind of way. Mm. And, you know, your first doubts might happen way back. You know, it may be something that resonates and then you just live with it for a bit because you don't see any way out and then something else happens um, and then that's the thing that triggers it and your turning point might happen, but it'll happen also over a period of time. And then by the time, like, the, the, and then there's a the whole question of like, how do you develop a, a, new, a, new, life. A, new, a new role and mm. a new life? One that as we were saying before, has to be kind of co-signed by the people around you, mm. but also has to have like the basic um, elements of, of, you know, what life requires, right? Making money, community, family, all of that, yeah. And what is some of the, if, if you remember, so I know you've done so much research in yeah. different topics, but um, in terms of exiting, what were some of the worst stories you heard of people trying to exit and either successfully exiting or not successfully exiting? Um, well, I mean, yeah, the worst stories are, are those that like, you know, people don't make it right. Like, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Um, because I've, I've been researching so long in a place, you know, I've got all of my, my interviews and I had them on my iTunes for a bit. And like, sometimes 
during shuffle, it would go through my to my voice notes, and you know, like suddenly I'm hearing somebody who's who's dead for for six years. It's it's a crazy mm. thing to and like people that you knew, you know, and people that had gotten out. So like in terms of like, yeah, the worst case scenario, um, yeah, there was like a couple of kids that that had gotten out, and I knew them from the very beginning of of my research. One had been out for two years. He was working sort of like contract, um, doing public works, construction, that sort of thing. They happened to be working around the terminus in, in Hanover Park. Somebody shot him, like, execution style, um, just for, for an old grudge, you know. And, I mean, like, he was he was pretty crazy when, when he was part of the gang, but, like, really soft-spoken kid, you know. Um, and he'd been out for two years. And there's another guy that also got out. Uh, he had been out for six months, but his uncle, I think, was a still a, a high-ranking member of the Laughing Boys, like right up there, also in Hanover Park. And he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and somebody shot him, I mean, partly because of his affiliation, but also just to like to hurt the gang and his mm. uncle, right? Um, and then, you know, there's people that do get out, but like at a cost. So um, Gavin, who is a, a story that I tell his story and he's like one of the central characters of my book so i spent a lot of time with him um he's the only life history that there's a whole chapter devoted to to him in the book i'm just kind of taken as like a, a standalone whereas the other ones are bits and pieces um i was there like for the entirety of his exit basically and it's it's interesting to see like how without the protection of the gang i mean some people can stand alone but very few people do like how people start taking chances you know so former gang allies will start talking shit and, and you know he's out of the gang and suddenly he's getting like shot up by enemies and almost killed a number of times gets stabbed a couple of times gets into fights with people that are his friends like you have suddenly have his friends taking him for a puss and like you know it's 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 a, a a very very fraught thing to no longer be able to rely on this persona but be living in a place where like yeah I mean people are out to, to take advantage of you um, and you can't show weakness, mm. you know? um, even if, if you're not a gang member. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's the unfortunate conditions that like are created by poverty and segregation and, and yeah, all of those, those social ills that, uh, that you can imagine. What is one of the things that you have learned from all of this experience? I know that's super hard to kind of just drop that on you, but what is something that's like really stuck out throughout um, this, this time that you've done this research? The, the reason that I got into it, so going back to, to perhaps the original question, there's that sort of like superficial telling of it. But, you know, as a, a kid or an adolescent, like I got into a lot of shit. Like <laughs> I, I lived in the most benign circumstances you could imagine, you know, growing up in, in Canada on the West Coast. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money because we were immigrants, but like we had plenty. And, and it was just like, you know, not very high crime rate, not a lot of drug use. Everybody's got their like nice lawns and all of this stuff. And, you know, my poor mother to like come to the police station a bunch of times. And oh, did you get arrested? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've also been arrested yeah, several exactly. times. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, there were guardrails there. Like I pushed Against those guardrails. You pushed against the boundaries. As much as I could. But like, you know, my guardrails were were up here and they were set up really, really um, mm. sturdily, let's say. Um, and I, if I had grown up in, in a Manorburg or Hanover Park or a Mitchell's Place. This is so crazy. This is like something that I've told so many people yeah. as well with my story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would be one of those kids, man. Like You just I, grew up in a different place. Exactly. Um, 
and yeah, so I, that's one thing that I, I take away from me. And, you know, I, I see in other people's struggles somehow, I mean, I, there's not an equivalency to be made, mm. but it's, it's really just a, a stroke of fortune that, that, you know, our spaces or our places aren't switched. And, and, you know, if I was in Prince's situation, I, I, I wouldn't have the savvy or the wherewithal or the strength of identity <laughs> to, to withstand everything that he's withstood yeah. and make it out on the other end. Like I'd probably be dead, honestly. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's a learning, but it's it's definitely a humbling experience. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah, I mean it's it's I think what I get out of it is that we're all so similar. Yeah. It's just some of us have a better luck of the draw. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's I, I think it's a good thing to appreciate. And I think it's it's also a good thing to appreciate for people that don't know much about gangs in this city and in others, because mm -hmm. it's it's a heavily charged topic and it's one that is often spoken about in, in ways that are very sort of inhumane, you know, like mm -hmm. there are real, real people with real struggles that make choices based on what they think are, um, you know, uh, what, what the best choices in the circumstances that they can. And mm -hmm. they come to realize very quickly that like, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a shitty decision that they've made, but then you're in it. Right. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think the, the the lesson should be that that you know when we're talking about not just gangs but also solutions to to gang violence um more policing harder policing getting the army to crack down on on drug dens and, and gang members and the communities in which they exist is not a solution um social programs, social development, uh, more money towards social housing, rehabilitation programs, community development, um, infrastructure development, better policing, all of these things are, are necessary, right? I mean, to to remake you know, the structural conditions that, that could make any of us choose to, to pursue that life if we're in those circumstances. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming down to the studio and sharing all this with us. Uh, it's been super fascinating for me. And um, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, fantastic to to, to be on, and, and thanks for taking an interest. It's nice to to be able to talk about mm. my work and and yeah, just share it with a broader audience. So much appreciated. I'm sure they all enjoyed it. <laughs> and thank you all for watching. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wide Awake Podcast, and I'll see you all very soon. Cheers. <laughs>